Proverbs chapter 22, if you haven't turned there yet, last time together we did not quite get out of the end of the 22nd chapter, we pick up in verse 22, where we're going to notice now sort of a little bit of a shift um, in some of these Proverbs. A lot of the Proverbs thus far up through uh, chapter 22, about midway of chapter 22, have kind of been sort of these one-verse compare, contrast, or kind of restating the same thing twice, and almost kind of each verse had its own somewhat of a topical uh, message or insight or nugget of wisdom for us. And now you'll notice as we kind of come into this next section, we sort of start to see like collective, maybe two, three verses at a time that will address some concept of wisdom or some insight uh, to give us greater understanding. Just a little bit of a a different approach we see kind of start to transition uh, at this point. So chapter 22, verse 22 begins by telling us, do not rob the poor because he is poor. In other words, because you're able to manipulate him in his situation. It's never good to take advantage of someone because you're able uh, to manipulate their weakness or vulnerability, and that's the idea here, nor oppress the afflicted, uh, those who are hurting, those who are wounded and weakened there at the gate, that is in the city gate. For the Lord, if that's done, he says, will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who have plundered them. So here in verse 22 and 23, uh, the wisdom given to us is really a caution not to mistreat or we might even say at times manipulate anyone who is weak, anyone who is vulnerable, maybe easier to take advantage of in some way because they're in an impoverished condition, they're lacking, or maybe they're in a weakened condition, they're afflicted, they're hurting, they're just not as strong in some sense, whether physically or emotionally, to resist or to hold off from being taken advantage of in some way. And the idea here is that caution not to mistreat or manipulate such people, nor to abuse those who are helpless to defend themselves. And really the, the warning is that if and when someone would do such a thing, that they're going to arouse the anger and really the offense of the Lord. He speaks of here how the Lord himself will come to the defense of such people. So when God sees someone who's being oppressed as a poor person or someone who's being taken advantage of in their afflicted or hurting condition, manipulated or mistreated, he says, the Lord will rise up and plead their cause and then plunder the soul that he is to go after and to really bring a form of judgment, we might say, to uphold the wrong that has been done to them by punishing their offender. And God himself getting directly involved to sort of execute that punishment to protect the innocent or the vulnerable. And what a wonderful thing just to see the nature of God in that and to realize the foolishness that at times people err into in their humanity where we as human beings who can be really cruel to one another on this earth at times think that somehow it's acceptable or permissible to harm or to hurt, to take advantage of someone, to manipulate a person, and that somehow if we're able to do that to someone, that we're going to get away with it. And really God's caution is that is a foolish mindset because God says wisdom knows you might have gotten away with it on a human level or for a time, but God will bring recompense. Uh, And God will make that wrong right, and God will come to the defense of those who are really not able maybe to defend or to protect themselves. Verse 24, he then goes on to say, and make no friendship 
with an angry man and with a furious man, that is someone who is prone to wrath, to outbursts of anger, tends to blow their top and get furious over things, do not go with, the idea is don't share companionship with, don't spend time with them and do things together, participating with them. The warning, verse 25, lest you learn his ways and then set a snare for your own soul. So this speaks of the wisdom of really being careful and using discretion in who we select for our friendships or our partnerships in this life. Again, we always want to remember, whether it's in our own adult life, whether we're you know, talking to the younger generation, to our teenagers, to our kids, we never really want to allow the freedom for other people to select us for friendships. Uh, the wise person instead stays in charge of being intentional about selecting their own friendships and establishing their own partnerships. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with people befriending us or trying to you know, enter into a relationship with us, but we ultimately have the control to be determinant in regards to who we choose to engage in those friendships, what types of boundaries we establish, who we choose to spend our time with and who we interact with and, you know, kind of perhaps, you know, interact with socially or enter into closer partnerships with. And this is the idea here when he talks about make no friendship with the angry or the furious man. Again, because who we interact with routinely and who we build relationships with is going to influence us. And a lot of times when we're younger, you know, again, that's almost a part of youthfulness. You don't want to indicate that. We try and teach our children this in our, their years when they're growing up. Look, you know, your, your friends are going to influence you. If you hang out with that bad crowd, and, you know, and, and typically immaturity doesn't want to hear that. But the reality is if you take a domestic dog and you send it out with a pack of wolves, that dog is not going to domesticate the wolves those pack of wolves are going to transition that dog to living like a wild predator uh, according to the way that they live. And look, the reality is the Bible teaches bad company corrupts good character. And who we routinely interact with, build close relationships with, friendships with, they are going to influence us, either for the good, which and that's a, a beneficial thing, or they're going to influence us for the bad. We're going to, by just default, absorb things from those that we spend time with and we have friendship connection with. And those who have issues, he describes in verse 24, those who have issues, we might say, with things like lack of self-control or emotional problems in their life. They've got anger issues or impatient issues, or maybe they're just uh, you know, angry bitter individuals. And some people, they just kind of live with a chip on their shoulder, or maybe some things have happened in their life that have caused them to just kind of become a very disgruntled, cynical, jaded person. And they're just kind of, you know, poisoned, it almost seems, with bitterness and anger. And there are some people who are just, the Bible is cautioning us, not healthy. It doesn't say to love them, to reach out to them, but not healthy to build friendships with. And to be able to recognize at times that there's somewhat of a toxicity to a person that we have to be careful to realize that if we enter into close friendship with them, it is very common that what's going to happen is we are going to learn their ways. We're going to absorb their patterns. That's what he says, verse 25, don't enter into a friendship with these kind of unhealthy people lest you learn their ways. 
That's what happens, right? I mean, any of us who have raised children, we've seen that happening in our own kids' lives. They start behaving like their friend group and, and vice versa. And so look, the same thing happens all throughout adult life as well. We are going to, in a sense, absorb and learn the ways of those that we choose to befriend and hang out with. And sometimes we end up ensnaring our own inward condition by interacting with people maybe that just aren't healthy. So when you see unhealthy patterns in a person, the wise thing to do might be to maintain appropriate boundaries with that person. Uh, love them, yes, reach out to them. I'm not saying you shouldn't minister to them, but you also would be wise to maintain appropriate boundaries because if you disregard that warning God cautions of here, he says, then you're going to likely find you're going to end up learning their ways and becoming much like them. And then all of a sudden, you're going to find that you're behaving in the way that they are or acting in the way that they do and really setting a snare for your own soul. So again, the wisdom here is to just be selective in regards to close relationships. Verse 26, he then goes on to say there, do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, that is, enters into an agreement, some contract, one of those who is surety for debts, the idea there is like what we might call co-signer, you put up surety or you assure the payment of a debt if someone can't afford that, or maybe even surety for your own debt for that matter, that you'll make a payment. Because he says, verse 27, if you have nothing with which to pay, you don't have the resources to fulfill the financial obligation that you've committed yourself to, why should he, that is the creditor or the loan person, come and take away your bed from under you? So it's a caution against entering into, we might say, bad deals or foolish arrangements or commitments, particularly ensuring financial obligations that we are not able to adequately pay for or to make sure we can follow through with whether it's our own personal financial obligations we enter into, contracts or commitments or loans, or whether it's putting up assurance for someone else, co-signing for someone else or saying, hey, you know, let, let me sign on that loan with you, and if you don't make the payments, I'll pay it. And God just says that's usually not a very wise thing to do because if you're not able to responsibly fulfill your obligations, whether it's a bad deal or a poor, foolish financial obligation, it's going to bring personal suffering into your life. He says you're going to find out that the end result is that if you don't have what's needed to pay, uh, you're going to end up enduring personal suffering and loss because of entering into that agreement. Verse 28, he then says, and do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Now, the ancient landmark spoke of the boundaries of the property or the land that the people owned. If you remember during the time of Joshua, when the nation of Israel conquered the Canaan land, afterwards they were all allotted different boundaries and territories according to the tribes and then the families within the tribes. And again, in that day and age, you know, they didn't, you know, call up the, you know, Dennisville Fencing Company and put big long fences. I mean, these are massive areas of, of property. And so because of that, typically what they would do is they would use stones as kind of landmarkers. And those were the boundary lines. That was basically the way of indicating, hey, my property, you know, starts or ends here and your property starts and ends here. And it was a way for them to be able to distinguish where the property lines were uh, and these boundaries were laid out. And so he says, don't remove the ancient landmarks 
which your fathers have set. Now, what was a common practice when people wanted to be sneaky or selfish or rob their neighbor was many times what they would do because all it was was per se maybe a stone or a few stones over a large area of territory, you know, when the darkness of night would set in or when your neighbor was sleeping at night, if you wanted to increase your property, you just go out there and you're talking about vast expanses of land and just take that property stone, the ancient landmark, and you just move it a few feet or a few yards further, uh, you know, in the direction uh, of his property and make your property a little bit bigger and his property a little bit smaller. And you just would continue to do that, and over time, and doing it in small and subtle increments, it wouldn't be very obvious that the boundaries are being changed, but they absolutely were. And you were basically compromising something and changing something that you had no right to alter. Now, in the same way, I think it's important from a wisdom standpoint to understand that these ancient landmarks, which were boundaries that were set by the fathers in times past, those boundaries were established for reasons. And the mistake that often would be made at times is those boundaries would be established in the past for purposeful reasons, but then later generations would come along. And they wouldn't perhaps understand why the boundary was where it was. Or they didn't see the purpose or the reason why that boundary existed where it was. And so there was this temptation to just disregard the boundaries. Oh, well, those are boundaries our fathers set. I mean, that was a different generation. I mean, this, and so they would disregard where the boundaries were set up and justify it was okay to remove the boundaries or change the boundaries that were put into place for a set purpose that should not have been budged. They were boundaries that were set up with purposeful reason by wise individuals who put them there for a purpose to basically maintain a proper boundary, and they had worked for a real long time before young Buck came along and decided we should move the boundary. And what God here no doubt is reminding is this wisdom of it is an unwise approach to think it's okay to make changes at times with how things were set up and to start altering boundaries that maybe have existed for a really long time, but the reality was they were put there before your time for a purpose. Somebody put them there, not randomly, not haphazardly, not thoughtlessly, but those boundaries were set up for a reason, and so therefore it is a foolish and arrogant mindset to say, who cares about that boundary? Let's just change it. It doesn't accommodate what we do under. It doesn't fit with what our ideas are. And to start moving and adjusting boundaries. And look, that can often apply to lots of different things. You know, whether it's boundaries that are set up with maybe processes that have existed for a period of time. And in time past, certain processes and boundaries were put into place and have been operating and working well. And there were reasons (laughs) those processes were put into place because that's been working like that for generations or for decades. And so for a new generation to come along and think they have this, you know, increased, you know, progressive insight, and we know way better because we're smarter than the last generation and the last six generations, so we should change this process or move this boundary elsewhere or get rid of this protocol or what was set up or the philosophy of how things have always been done because we have some innovative new ways that we would like to approach and do things, and God says, that's really foolish. He says, don't, don't go doing that kind of stuff. 
And look, the same applies, I think, to an even greater and more concerning degree when you're talking about ancient landmarks and boundaries that have been set up that are moral and that are spiritual, things that pertain to the word of God and moral absolute truth that have existed for a long period of time with prior generations in regards to what is moral in regards to male and female and what marriage is to be and what marriage is not to be. And boundaries of all degrees of moral truth of what has always been right and appropriate. And for generations and generations and generations, those boundaries were respected. And they were recognized they're in place for a purpose. Those boundaries exist to keep us all safe and healthy and they're appropriate and they're what's best. And we should leave and respect and honor those boundaries and not think that if we start moving them that we're not going to create a whole bunch of major problems. And I tell you, that is a great concern, and it's something I would say to you. If you want a prayer point for our modern generation and future generations, there's a prayer point right there. Because there is this very arrogant mindset of wanting to change this, and, well, this is a different generation, and we need to be progressive, and, we need, and, all, and all of a sudden, people are wanting to move boundaries. And I tell you, when you start doing that, then what boundaries is it okay and not okay to move anymore once you start moving boundaries? Because what happens is, well, this boundary existed for a long period of time, and we pushed against it, and we said we want our rights and our entitlements, and this is right, and this is acceptable. And eventually they said, okay, and they, they, moved the, they let us move the boundary. And then all of a sudden, what happens then when the next group comes along and says, well, look, for a period of time, you wouldn't move their boundary, and eventually their boundary got moved. You can't show us partiality. We would like this boundary moved for us as well. And so we would like to do this perverse thing, or we would like to do this thing, or we would like to have multiple spouses, or we would like to marry eight-year-old children. Or, and then all of a sudden, you have this filthy, perverse landslide of morality that starts to happen. So again, so important. God says here, wisdom respects and understands. Sometimes it is not wise at all to remove those ancient boundaries and landmarks which the fathers and time past set up in our nation with our moral fiber work, biblical standards. Again, we want to respect those things. And I'll tell you, the modern church would do itself well to respect that as well. Instead of thinking that us being more trendy and relevant and innovative is always the best thing, sometimes that's turning the church more into an entertainment factory then it really is a spiritual institution to help people to worship God and to grow in the word of God and to be strong and healthy spiritually and morally. Instead, it's almost as if now we're you know, opening, but hey, we need to compete with this and that and, and this streaming service and we have to keep everybody and, and we're, we're really doing a great disservice to ourselves in the body of Christ. Verse 29, he concludes the chapter saying, do you see a man who excels in his work he will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. So this basically just esteems the wisdom of employing skill and, and absolute dedication in our work, whatever our work may be, and how that results in greater opportunity. He says, do you see a man? Do you see someone who's excelling in their work because they're dedicated 
They're putting forth their best effort. They're employing skill in what they do, doing it well, being conscientious, being thorough, giving their... And he says, do you see someone who's excelling in their work? He says, someone who's doing that will end up standing before kings and not just unknown men. The idea is it will result in greater opportunity, right? Typically, you don't get to stand before a king. Standing before a king is an increased opportunity. That's a, an open door for like a, a better platform. And so the idea here is those who do what they do well will be sought after. They'll be offered greater opportunities. That man who excelled in his work would be someone that maybe the king would hear about or the king would take notice of and see how that individual is excelling in his work. And the king says, you know what? Let's, let's give that guy a job. Let's give that guy a promotion. Let's bring him into the court uh, of the, the king, and, and he excels in his work, and so I'd like him to come and work for me. And so what a good reminder here that God says, you know, wisdom, just put our head down, do what we do, do it well, excel in our work, and as we excel in our work, God is more than able to expand our opportunities and really to give us greater platforms as that would pertain to our lives. Chapter 23, he begins verse 1 saying, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. So if you need a Bible verse for dieting, there you go. Verse 2, that could work for you if that helps you. Put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Do not desire, verse 3, his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. So the idea here is if you are, you might say, given special opportunity, he says if you get a chance to sit down to eat with a ruler, again, that's a special opportunity. Typically on everyday you know, affairs, you're not sitting down with rulers and kings and prominent people. So he's saying if you're given some type of a special opportunity, Pay attention to how you handle that opportunity and how you conduct yourself in that situation and handle yourself well. So if we find in our life a good opportunity set before us, a special opportunity presents itself to us, like sitting down with a ruler or some type of special opportunity, he says the wise person pays attention in that situation. And pay attention to how you hand yourself and think through and, and don't be driven, he says, by just appetites and longings, he describes here. The idea in the verse is sort of use self-restraint so that you don't go too far. He says, if you sit down with a ruler, that's a, a special occasion. He says, consider carefully. The idea is think about things before you do them. Think about what's before you. And if you're prone to be driven by appetite and to be governed by the desires within you and your longings, he says, if you need to, put a knife to your throat if you're someone who's given to appetite. So the idea there is don't let your craving just be, you know, something where you see that wealthy individual, you see his delicacies, he describes there, and all that's there, but he says, really, they're just deceptive food. I think what he's kind of reminding us of the value of using self-restraint, because if we let, and let's say, for example, you sit down with a ruler and you see this incredible feast and the spread on the ruler's table and all the delicacies and the wonderful things he gets to eat that you're never eating, doing your little Walmart budget, and you're thinking, man, I have never seen food like this, and all of a sudden you're driven to want to just start gorging yourself, and he says here, look, don't let your craving to be just like the powerful and the wealthy cause you to be misled 
and jump in headlong and not think about what you're doing because he says you may find that that feast set before you and you even being invited to that special dinner is just something that's deceptive food. In other words, it may be the king's just looking to pull one over on you. And maybe he's just put that spread before you to arouse your attention, to generate your desire. And we might say he set the table well to get you to bite and to get you to jump in and to go ahead and just fool on indulge because it looks so enjoyable. And he's saying, look, that may not be a reflection of what's reality. And be careful. And I think it's good wisdom for us to realize sometimes it's prudent to not just go with what we see with our eyes or we're driven to do in our desires, but to think through things. Before we indulge, before we partake, it could just be someone's baiting you for their own purposes, like the king with his deceptive food, and, and we won't want to be on the other side of that. That's where problems and difficulties happen. Verse 4 and 5 he then gives some really great practical wisdom, I think particularly for those of us in the American culture, the way we live in the West. He says, do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding, cease. Stop, he says. Cut it out with an exclamation point. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, and they fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Now, he said quite a bit about laziness, right? If that's one topic that we've seen recurring again and again, he's definitely discouraged laziness. God's condemned being slothful, being unproductive, making excuses for not being hard workers and responsible. Now God gives wisdom on the other side of that. Now it's almost as if God addresses, you know, kind of the, the workaholic mentality, the person who is very driven to work. They like hard work. They are a productive worker, but their productive work habit sometimes becomes something that gets out of balance. Notice, he doesn't say it's wrong to work or to work hard or even to overwork if that's what you got to do just to pay the bills. And sometimes that is the case, right? Sometimes just to pay the bills or a situation you may be in or a season you may be in. You know, I've been married for you know, 28 plus years now. There are times and seasons and trying to keep my wife home predominantly when we were raising the kids. There were times and seasons where one job, job wasn't enough and you got to overwork, you got to hustle and you got to. And so there's nothing wrong with working hard to provide or to pay bills or to do what you got to do sufficiently to make sure that you're meeting needs and supplying adequately, it's tough, right? And we all know it. It's a grind, and it's difficult. It's part of the curse. You know, by the sweat of our brow, we're all eking out a living in this world. That's not what he's referring to here. What he's describing here, and notice the language, do not overwork, I have it underlined, to be what? Rich. He's saying this is where life gets unwise and out of balance, don't overexert yourself in working too hard, too much, too long just to become rich or to become more wealthy or to enjoy greater luxury or a higher standard or the nicer vehicle or the higher end this or you know, all the things that are part of the you know, luxury of the modern American culture. He says, beware of that attraction and pursuit of nicer things and more luxury or even just more money in the bank that it doesn't overdrive you to where you end up overworking more than is healthy just really for more material wealth. And that that tends to be the driving factor 
of why a person starts to overwork and why, because that ends up overworking, just harming a person's life. We're all intended to work. We're also all intended to rest. And there's a balance between work rest. And he says, don't certainly don't overwork just to become more rich. He says, because of your own understanding of these kind of things, he says, if you're doing that, stop. Stop the pattern. Recognize, well, I am working a little bit too much, and the motivator isn't to responsibly pay the bills. The motivator is I just want some nicer stuff, or I like a higher standard, or I just want more financial security and these kind of things. And he says, maybe there's a need to trust the Lord a little more. Maybe there's a need to have a little more balance in life. And notice he speaks of kind of that always looking to the next thing, discontentment. Look what he says there in verse 4, or verse uh, 5. He says, will you set your eyes on that which is not? The idea is always seeing what you don't have yet at the time. You know, oh, well, if I just work a little bit more, or we put in a little more time, or we spend a little, then we can eventually get that thing, or buy that thing, or get the, and, and, and the idea is you're always after the next thing, whether it's the, higher level, the trade up, or whether it's just the thing you don't possess yet or that you want. And so you're overworking because you're being driven really from a spirit of discontentment, God's saying. And, and it's setting our eyes on something that's not that we don't yet have or a salary standard that others around us have. Or, and all of a sudden we're overdriven to pour out really more than we should. And we're working way too much and way too long and way too many hours in some reasons. And it's just because of something we don't have not because we need to responsibly take care of stuff. So he says, beware of that. And he also tells us, understanding this, we should recognize not just discontentment, but he says, verse 5, even if you overwork to be rich and you amass tons of riches, look what he says, no wealth is 100% secure. Look what he says there in verse 5. For riches, if you attain them, certainly make themselves wings, what a word picture, and like a bird, they fly away like an eagle toward heaven. I mean, what a picture there. You know, here we are, you know, we work because we like all this nice stuff and we want to be more affluent. We get caught into that, you know, kind of rat race in the American culture. But then there's another part of it where people are working and sometimes overworking because they want security. Oh, I just want financial security. Can I tell you, truth be told, that's not even a biblical concept. I'm not saying it's not prudent. I'm not saying that financial advisors and you know, people who give great, wonderful financial counsel aren't teaching good things when they talk about, hey, look, you know, be your own advocate, be financially responsible, take care of yourself. But the bottom line is the Bible really doesn't teach that it's possible to have financial security. First Timothy chapter 6 talks about riches, and he says uncertain riches. Because God says right here, we can amass riches or have riches, and those riches can certainly, not uncertain, but certainly make themselves some wings and just go flying away from the nest. <laughs> and what God's reminding us of here is no matter what we do or how hard, you know, we try and secure our money, and God says, you can't even do that. We're all looking to secure, I'm going to secure my investment, and, and God says, you really can't. It's ultimately all dependent upon the Lord at the end of the day and circumstances, and there's never a guaranteed thing to secure money because what God is saying is it can always depart. 
right? And if you have lived life long enough and been through, for those of you even older than me, you know, different seasons and generations and the economies go up and down, right? I mean, we see it's just a pattern that happens. You know, people are doing real well, and then all of a sudden a stock market crashes or the economy changes, and, and their wealth and amassed and riches, there goes thousands of dollars just go Fly, they just fly away and they just disappear. And you have no control over it, right? Just no control. And, you know, when you're doing life, all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, great, well, we're, we're, we're finally saving a little bit of money. Yeah, my, my tooth's kind of been hurting recently. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm just keep brushing it a little bit longer. And then all of a sudden your face is swelling. And maybe I should go to the dentist. Yeah, and you go to the dentist and the dentist says, yeah, well, it's probably, yeah, can you, it's probably cavities. How much is a cavity caught in? Ma'am, you actually need a root canal. Oh, really? Root canal? What? Yeah, well, it was, well, how much does one of those cost? Oh, no, we got a good discount now. Well, they are these days. You know, I by the grace of God, I haven't won one in a while. But 1500 bucks or 1700 bucks. Bye-bye. You know, and then your money talks again, doesn't it? Money does talk. That's all it really says is goodbye. It says Hello. Get you excited, you're thinking, oh, we're getting ahead, we're getting ahead. And then just, right, one little dental bill, or the kids need a new outfit, or something happens, or the heater blows up, or the car breaks down, and then all of a sudden, there go the wings on that money, <laughs> and it just goes flying away. So God just says to us here, look, wisdom understands that we maintain a discipline and a balance of contentment keep proper priorities. I think the application point is don't put, listen, don't put your job, don't put career, don't put wealth and material possessions ahead of God. Just don't do that. It's just not wise. And it never works out at the end of the day. And, and don't ever put career pursuits and paths and getting more wealth ahead of your family and ransack your marriage, and you got a little bit nicer things in your house, but now your marriage is falling apart, or your kids aren't being paid proper attention to, or, or, or you're destroying your health because you're overworking so much in a degree that's not balanced mentally or physically. So God says, just use wisdom. Jesus said it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things, they'll be added to you. In balance, your father will make sure that you have what you need. You do what's responsible. You do what's balanced. You work hard. You use wisdom. But don't get out of balance where you're more driven in unhealthy ways. He says, be wise and recognize these great spiritual principles. Good, good wisdom, I think, for much of us in the American culture there. Verse 6, he says, and do not eat the bread of a miser, or your translation may say a stingy person, nor desire his delicacies, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. The morsel that you have eaten, you will vomit up and waste your pleasant words. Now, take notice in these verses here. He's not talking about the frugal person. When he describes there the bread of a miser, the food of a miser or a stingy person, vast difference between someone who's frugal and someone who's a miser and someone who's stingy. Someone who is frugal is someone who 
sparingly uses money in the wisest way possible, and they're economical. They, to be a frugal person is to be an economical, sparing person to try and get the most for your money, yet there are people who are very frugal and good stewards who are also incredibly giving, and they're very generous. And sometimes people who do well financially is because they know how to live frugally with stewardship and discipline, and as a result, they're in a good, healthy financial position, and it gives them more opportunity to be able to give and to bless others because they're managing what they have very wisely with frugality. Nothing wrong with that. What he's describing here is the unhealthy condition of someone that he calls a miser. And a miser is a person who hoards wealth for themselves because really they have a selfish agenda to want to bless themselves. So what they do, the, the person who's a miser, is they spend as little money as possible on other people or other things because they're trying to keep as much money as they can for themselves. So it's a whole different agenda there. The person who's a miser is a stingy person who has no problem being cheap as it comes to dealing with others or blessing others or you know giving a gift to others. They have no problem being stingy and cheap, but the reason they're being stingy and cheap isn't because they're trying to be a good steward. It's really because they want to keep more money for themselves so they can buy a nicer thing or have more stuff for themselves. So they're stingy and they're a miser. And that's motivated from a selfish agenda. And this is what he's describing in the verse here. That miser, he says, don't desire his delicacies, for as he thinks in his heart, he may say to you, he's got you over for dinner, hey, you know, eat and drink. Have as much as you want. You want seconds? You're like, yeah, this is really good. Actually, yeah, I think I will have seconds. And then you eat and drink and you enjoy the seconds. But he says, but his heart's not with you. Because as you're eating a second, he's thinking, I wanted that for leftovers tomorrow. I mean, I said eat and drink, but I mean, just and, and, and again, just putting on a pretense and putting on an act, and he says, you know, you're going to find yourself in a spot where the more so you, and again, you borrow somebody's lawnmower, you can give it back. Once you eat their food, he says, the only thing you do then is vomit it back up on the plate, <laughs> and you're going to think, I wish I would have never said yes when you offered me seconds. And what he's basically describing here in our verse is he's cautioning us not to desire the enjoyable things that a person who's stingy or a miser may have, even if they've got nice stuff or a feast on their table, because he says the bottom line is the only reason they have nice stuff as a stingy miser is because they're selfishly hoarding for themselves and they're cutting everybody else out in a cruel and a mean way. And he says, you shouldn't envy somebody like that. You don't want to become someone like that. They're pretending to be a giving person an outward image, but their heart condition is completely something different. So again, God cautions us certainly not to be like that, and as well, not to envy someone like that because it's just a pretense that they put on in their life. Verse 9, he then says, And do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. So again, just describing here how some people, and he describes them as fools, have no interest in hearing counsel. The fool has no interest in receiving guidance or instruction because of their foolishness. They may just need to learn by painful and unpleasant consequences of making their own choices. So he says, sometimes the wisest thing to do with someone like that who has really no interest in receiving instruction or guidance is honestly not to offer any. He says, there are some people when you see that in them and their foolish bent, the wisest thing you can do is don't offer any input. 
Just let them make their own choice. And sometimes the wisest thing we can do with certain people, God says, is just be quiet and let them struggle. Because that may be the way that they need to learn. Because if you give them wisdom or you offer your input, even trying to be helpful, they're just going to despise it. And sometimes then they just get mad at you. And, well, who are you to tell me? And, then they, and, and it causes this relational tension when the better thing would be, obviously you're a fool. You have no interest in any wisdom. So I'm just not going to offer my input. I'll just let you make your own foolish choices. And your consequences will then be your teacher's. And some people just, we talk about need to learn the hard way, and that's kind of the idea here. Verse 10, he comes back to this idea again repetitiously, don't remove the ancient landmark. We've already talked quite a bit about that. And he says, nor enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is mighty, and he will plead their cause against you. So here he particularly emphasizes not taking and moving that ancient boundary to steal territory from the fatherless, again, the orphan. Uh, the one who's in a vulnerable condition, not manipulating them, because he says, if you take advantage of the vulnerable and the less fortunate, he says, their redeemer, God himself, is mighty, and he is going to come to their aid. And, and again, we always have to remember, God is, is many things described in the scripture, but he is clearly described as a father figure. And you don't mess with a father's kids, right? <laughs> and he says, you know, you go messing with people who are in a vulnerable condition, he says, you're going to arouse the anger of the heavenly father and he is going to come to their aid and to their assistance with a strong vengeance to deal with such. Verse 12, he says, apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. Now, interesting verse here, the idea of apply your heart to instruction, that is have a heart for instruction, that your heart is eager to be instructed and he says, if your heart is eager to be instructed, if your heart is wanting to learn, then what will happen is your ears will then be eager to listen. So again, the heart condition determines the receptivity when instruction is being given. Apply your heart to instruction and then your ears to words of knowledge. So it's necessary to be eager to be instructed because the opposite of that is true. If our heart is not interested then our ears are not going to endure instruction. So if someone's heart is not interested in learning or really interested in being able to be guided or instructed, then their ears will never be able to endure receiving instruction. So again, we have to have that willingness and spirit. We want to apply our heart. Lord, my, I want to be instructed. That hunger, that desire, that's a, a beautiful thing because then you have a receptive ear to hear what God wants to show you and teach you. You know, I just, again, by way of practical application, I had a chance to see this firsthand, you know, last evening. I met with a young couple for premarital counseling, and we met at 8 o'clock, and, and I'm doing their wedding. They actually live out of the area, and I had to drive in like an hour and a half, but I offered to do it virtually, but they said, no, we'd rather do it in person. Time they worked and ate and, and got here, we met at 8 o'clock at night here to start, and so I was trying to be gracious and said, look, just before we get going here, I know in my mind what things have to, and so you, know, you tell me what time do you want to be out of here by so you can get back on the road at a reasonable hour because you got another hour and a half commute back and you know back to work in the morning or whatever, and, and I in my mind they can kind of know maybe where's the best spot to kind of cut off and we can pick up next session and go, <laughs> going forward. So I asked them this, and they're you know kind of looking among themselves, uh, and the young man looks back at me and he says, well, I don't know. I mean, we, you know, probably like 
three, four hours max, we'd, we'd probably start. And I'm like, <laughs> holy smokes. Like, I can't even do that, you know. But I, I thought to myself, like, wow. And he said, we're just really hungry to learn. And, and we want to absorb all we can. And I thought, wow, what a noble heart attitude. I mean, it just was, to me, it was like this. You know, talk about having a heart to want to be instructed and therefore an ear that's going to hear things. I mean, again, if our heart's not interested, our ears are going to be closed off. If our heart is inclined and interested, we're going to have an ear to hear a whole lot more. And you'll tell them that's a good reminder for all of us, the reality that if at times we find ourselves struggling with paying attention to instruction, it could be a heart issue. And so sometimes it begins with, God, change my heart. Give me a heart to be eager to learn, to want to be instructed, to want to hear what you have to say, and that will help maybe with the attentiveness and the receptivity of what he is trying to say. Verse 13, do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Well, that's very pointed, isn't it? Again, this is one of those verses where, of course, people who want to beat up on the word of God and question it, you all know, oh, see that the Bible teaches child abuse and so forth. Look, this has nothing to do with abusing a child or physical punishment in a way that's rendered out of control that harms a child. I mean, that is just completely wrong. It's inconsistent with the entirety of God's nature and character and all of what the word of God teaches. And really to do such, if a parent does abuse, inflicting pain upon their child in a punitive way, punishing them, th that is wrong. And that's a parental error. And that parent has violated something incredibly sacred by lacking self-control themselves. You know, I'll be honest, one of my pet peeves, it was during the parenting process, and now we're on the other side of that with, you know, three of our children all married now, is to be in public and to watch a parent just go ballistic and start freaking out on their kid. And it takes everything within me at times to not want to go over and to strangle the parent because I'm thinking the problem is you make so many idle threats. Stop, Johnny. Stop, Bobby. Stop, Bobby. Stop, Bobby. Don't do that, Bobby. Stop. And you never execute correction, discipline, correct guidance and then, like any human being, at a certain point, you can only take so much, and then the parent explodes in anger. And then they say things they shouldn't say, and I hate to say, even in public, and God forbid, I wonder what happens in private, they may in anger beat or whack or smack their kids in anger in a way that's way beyond what they should. And the Word of God does not teach that. The Word of God teaches that our children need training, they need discipline, they need guidance. We've talked about that to a great extent in our last few chapters. And here's another reminder that one of the roles of a parent is healthy, proper correction in a measured way. And in a measured way whereby it actually does bring about a degree of pain in their life to help correct them from the wrong behavior because we're simply teaching them in a controlled, measured way bad decision correction, painful consequence, because that's a life lesson, right? Bad decisions bring painful consequences. And so here, what he is giving to us is basically a caution to not be an overly passive parent. 
The parent who's overly passive that for whatever reason doesn't correct their child for whatever their reasons or justifications may be. Oh, I, you know, I, I don't like to discipline. I don't like, that's not my thing. I just, I was disciplined wrong or, or, or you know, there's too much emotional coddling. And so they over-emotionally coddle their child, and so they're very good at the sentimental affection, but they never execute in correction, or the parent who, in passivity and error, just makes excuses for their child's misbehavior. You know, again, I was watching a Christian comedian, I won't mention names, but one of the funniest things I think he ever did one time was he basically was portraying working in children's ministry to a church, and how the child he was watching was just wild and out of control the whole class long and took scissors out and was stabbing other kids and, and, and just a complete, you know, out of control child. And when he talked to the parent afterwards to trying to address what was going on, the mother just said, oh, he has allergies. And he said, no, your child's a demon. He doesn't have allergies. But again, there's that thing again. Oh, well, just making excuses rather than acknowledging and addressing and correcting. No, he probably maybe just needs a spanking and he needs some corrective discipline. And rather than stabbing other kids with scissors, maybe he needs a good whooping on his own rear end and the Board of Education applied to the seat of learning a little bit (laughs) in a good old-fashioned way where we maybe don't move the ancient landmarks even on parenting and correction and things like spanking in healthy, appropriate ways to raise kids that are respectful and honor authority and are corrected when they behave wrongly. And again, this is that caution to parents who could be overly passive or even, quite frankly, at times just too distracted. And some parents simply don't correct because they're just too distracted. They're not paying attention. They're not engaged. They're not involved. And they're too distracted wanting to do their own life and this, that, and pursuits, and they're tired, and, and they're talking and socializing, and they should be paying more attention at a season and stage to monitoring their children and correcting their children's behavior. And so God says here, look, this is important, the correction of a child. And he says here, do not withhold correction. In other words, God says to withhold correction for a child and not exercise disciplinary action in their life as a parent, he says, that's actually doing something that disregards God's role for a parent. If a parent withholds correction, they are doing something wrong. They should be implementing some painful corrective action, however they choose to do that, to bring correction in their child. In our home, when our children grew up, we had a Mr. Woody. I looked at the Bible. I saw every time God corrected the children of Israel in the Old Testament, he'd raise up an instrument. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Philistines, God would raise up an instrument and he would use an instrument to discipline the Spangus kids. Okay, I'm not going to call the whole army down, but we have a wooden spoon in the house. And so we had Mr. Woody. And it allowed my children to do two things. One, to associate that they did not associate my hand with pain. They associated my hand afterwards with loving affection and expressing that and hugging and embracing them afterwards and explaining them why they had to be corrected. And what it also did was it kept us in check as parents because it is much harder to not just let out your frustration and spank your kid instantaneously when you're mad to say to your child, you know what, go back to your room. And then they go back to their room and then you have to walk over get Mr. Woody, 
and then you got to take the long walk, and it only takes about 10 steps no matter how bad your kid's been because you love them so much, right? The old adage, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Well, nobody understands that until you're a parent. And you're thinking, oh, I don't want to do this. Then you walk in, and you got adorable, cute little girl faces like mine. Dad, Dad, oh, Dad, I love you so much, Daddy. I love you so much, Daddy. And to then, in a controlled, measured way, not in anger, but using controlled, healthy force in an appropriate manner of painful consequence to inflict some degree of pain to bring about brokenness and repentance in a sufficient manner, and then to explain why they're being corrected and why this is necessary and to help them to understand. And look, he says, don't withhold correction for if you beat him with a rod, he won't die. They may tell you, you're killing me. You're, you're killing me. Don't do it. But you're not going to die, God says. In fact, look what he says. You're actually going to do the opposite. He says, you're going to deliver their soul from hell. You may spare them from an early death or you may spare them to the worst possible thing that would happen after death. And by you inflicting a little bit of pain as a parent to deliver them from personal error, you're going to set them free from self-destructive tendencies. That will progress. They will. They will progress and just grow if we don't, as parents, drive them out of their lives. And sometimes parents find themselves on the back end of life realizing, you know, man, maybe if I would have corrected a little more here, that self-destructive tendency wouldn't have grown through the teenage years and the adult years. So again, God's way is best. God knows what he's doing. He gives us great wisdom in regards to these things for an important reason. He says, verse 15, my son, if your heart is wise, my heart will rejoice. Indeed, I myself, yes, my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak wise things. So he speaks again. There's the fruit of parenting, my son. When a parent or a guardian who's been mentoring a younger person sees them grow up and behave wise, what does it do? It brings such joy to the parent's heart. To be able to be proud, to see their child being wise or who they mentored being wise. And he says, my inmost being rejoices when I hear your lips speak right things. That is, you, you hear then your, the fruit of your labors, your kids growing up, and they're talking and saying right things and making right choices, and they got a right outlook, and you're thinking, man, this is really awesome. And then you get the fruit of it. But it takes a long time for the fruit to come, right? It's all the labor in the early years, but eventually he says there's nothing more enjoyable than to get that advantage long term. Do not let your heart envy sinners, he says, verse 17, nor be zealous for the but be zealous for the fear of the Lord, for surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. So again, much like Psalm 37 much like Psalm 73, don't let your heart, he says, envy sinners. In other words, don't look at people who are unsaved, who don't know God, who are living rebellious. And we all do this from time to time. We think, man, it's, it seems like their life's going just as good or better than mine. I mean, they're robbing and cheating and doing things wrong. And, they're, you know, and all of a sudden, we start to get jealous and envious. And God says, this is a focus thing. And he says, wisdom has to reel that back in and reset the focal point and realize, look, no matter what it looks like, don't envy them. He says, just remain zealous for the fear of the Lord. In other words, you just keep honoring God, doing what's right in the sight of the Lord. And here's the key, verse 18, for surely there is a hereafter and your hope won't be cut off. In other words, wise people evaluate the lives of others, not in light of their current experience, 
but in light of eternity. And to look at people in light of eternity, we should be most concerned and passionate about honoring God and remember that life on earth does end. And what matters most is eternity. That's what's reality. And he says, look, if we keep from envying worldly people and we seek to please God and we live with eternity connected to our choices and the way that we operate our lives, he says, your hope will not be cut off. In other words, our hope in doing what's right to honor the Lord is never going to be wasted. I assure you, there is no one in heaven who has regrets for living for God faithfully on earth. And boy, it's a really wise mindset to keep that in mind. I'm never, but there are lots of people who are in hell, and part of their eternal torment in hell, I was so foolish. God says there is a hereafter wisely live in light of that. Let's stand, let's pray.